0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. This morning we are starting a new teaching series through a very old story, and that old story we know as the Old Testament Book of Ruth. Um, the book of Ruth is great. It's, it's a very short story. In fact, uh, if you open up your Bibles to the book of Ruth, it's probably just a couple of pages long. And so, including this Sunday, over the next five weeks, we are going to preach through the entire book together. And uh, to that end, I'd love to throw out a little challenge for you this morning, okay? And the challenge is this. It's only five weeks. Only five weeks we're going to be in this. So what would it look like for you to make it a goal to be here for all of them, right? Be here for all five. We would love to have you. You're allowed to do that. Uh, and uh, yeah, man, we'd, we'd hate, for you, hate for you to miss this. So this morning is mostly going to serve as an introduction to the book of Ruth. And so what I want to do is uh, sort of give you some general uh, basic info on the book. Uh, I want to establish some context for us. And I want to give you some helpful insights that I think are going to serve us well in the coming weeks as we dive deeper into the story. So uh, yeah, the book of Ruth. Firstly, I think it's worth mentioning that the book of Ruth, uh, it's one of only two books in the entire Bible uh, that are named after a woman, okay? So most of the Bible, like actually most of uh, sort of our world history, if we're honest, spends most of its time celebrating and recognizing men, okay? But Ruth, Ruth bucks the trend, Right? We 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 have a lady hero in the book of Ruth. We actually have two of them. And so I think it's time that we make a really big deal about that, right? Like make a big deal about it. The truth is, the truth is that that there is an incredibly rich history of women in the faith who have gone before us, right? And even though their stories are are often untold or maybe undertold, the reality is they are no less in the kingdom of God. Amen. So ladies of Antioch, hear me. You are necessary. You are important. You are deeply valued. I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes that I came across this week. Uh, the quote is from a uh, commentator and theologian, uh, Her name is Kirsten Nielsen, um, and she's she's brilliant, um, and and she's done incredibly well in a field that's often dominated by men. But in reference to the Old Testament narratives on the whole, this this is her quote. She says this Of all of these stories, excuse me, all these stories belong to the patriarchal narratives, but the very word patriarchal tempts us to overlook the crucial role that women play and the wealth of stories that testify to their efforts. Without women, there are no patriarchs. <laughs> Amen? While on this topic of recognizing and celebrating women of faith, I think it's, it's worth mentioning that while the author of the book of Ruth is technically anonymous, did you know that of all of the books in the Bible, this is the one? This is the one most speculated among scholars to have likely been written by a woman. Isn't that interesting? there's a whole slew of reasons for that. I just want to share three with you that I think are pretty interesting. Firstly, uh, this is one of the only narratives in Scripture that's written from the female perspective. It's written from the perspective of a woman. And so the question is, well, how did this author do that so well? How did this author write from the female perspective so convincingly? Logically, the answer would be uh, because they probably lived it. (laughs) It probably was their shared experience, right? Another reason people often claim that this book may have been written by a woman is that multiple times in this story, get this, this story defines males by their relationship to females. So I'll say that again. This story defines the males by their relationship to the females. Now, that is the opposite of what occurs almost everywhere else in the Scripture. Let me give you an example just in in verse 3 of the text that that Pat just read for us. It says, But Elimelech the husband of Naomi, right? Okay, now that that may seem simple, but it's actually a pretty big deal. Because what is the text saying? What is it suggesting, right? What is significant about this dude? She is. She is what defines him. Kind of interesting. The third uh, argued evidence for female authorship is this, that of the 85 or so verses that comprise the book of Ruth, some 55 of them, this is like 60 plus percent of the book of Ruth is dialogue. (laughs) And I'm just gonna leave that one there. So uh, one, one final, one final interesting note uh, on the book of Ruth as a whole uh, is that Ruth is fairly widely agreed upon to be the single greatest literary work in the Bible, right? From, from like a, a, a technical writing perspective, from a, from a literature perspective, it's considered to be the best. Ruth is an absolute masterpiece. It was masterfully written, beautifully told, Okay. The author was not just an author, this author was an artist. And their use of language, their expansive dialogue, their employment of tremendous humor and and irony, we're going to look at some of the irony today, their use of tragedy and joy, it's incredible. It's incredible. And so there is this sense in which we, we, of course, enjoy the book of Ruth because it's the Bible, right? Because it's part of God's word. It's inspired and it's historical. It's God-breathed, all of that, right? Sure. But also, there's a sense in which we enjoy the book of Ruth because it's just incredible literature. And we should enjoy it as such. It's a masterpiece. One of the things uh, that makes Ruth so enjoyable, in in my perspective, uh, is its genre, right? Right? So it belongs to the genre of narrative, meaning uh, it's, it's story. It's just a story. It's not some big long list of weird laws, and it's not a theology lecture. It's just story. And it's actually a really short one at that. We could, even, we could probably even call it a novella, right? A short story. But here's a challenge for you this morning. Don't fall into the trap of assuming that because this is short, it's also simple. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that because this is short, it's simple. You see, there's this tremendous temptation to oversimplify, or what I would say is to to caricaturize, to make a caricature of biblical narratives. And historically, many have done this, particularly with the book of Ruth. Many have reduced Ruth to simply a beautiful love story, and they say, oh, it's nice, and it's sweet, and it's romantic, and most often in its caricaturized form, people apply this story to like single women who are desperately looking for husbands or whatever. Guys, that is a caricature, that is a reduction, that is an oversimplification that actually robs this story of its purpose. It robs this story of its power and its true beauty, and, and, and this, this caricatur, caricaturization is so common. It's so common. I want to share with you a book uh, that I came across on Amazon recently, uh, a book that I think articulates this caricature perfectly. And uh, I'll say this. I, I swear to you, this is real. This is actually real. I could, not, uh, I could not have made it up even if I wanted to. And so here's the book. It's titled, God, Where is My Boaz? A Woman's Guide to Understanding What's Hindering Her from Receiving the Love and the Man That She Deserves. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I wasn't sure when I first saw that, like, should I laugh? Or maybe should I cry? Um, Part of me kind of wanted to throw up. (laughs) Like, uh, weird, right? Most notably, I think we can all appreciate it was also written by a man. Uh, What the heck, right? What is this? What is this? Um, So here's my recommendation. Don't waste your time or money. Don't buy this one. If you're really desperate to read it, I think Jarrell actually bought a copy. Uh, (laughs) You could probably borrow it from him. He'd be happy to loan it to you. Uh, Now, I mention all of this this morning because I think that one of our chief tasks in rightly handling the scripture, and rightly handling this scripture in particular, is that we need to confront and upend these caricatures. The caricature is not what this story is about. It's not a sweet rom-com, right? And it's not a how-to guide in finding a Christian mate. It is so much deeper than that. Rather, the book of Ruth, this is what the book of Ruth is about. The book of Ruth is a story about enduring faithfulness, even in the midst of tragedy. It's a story about suffering, It's a story about the marginalized and the vulnerable. It's a story about people properly leveraging their privilege for God's purposes in the world, right? And ultimately... The book of Ruth is a story that reveals to us how faithful God is to us, even in spite of our sin, and it's a story that challenges us to live lives of faithfulness to him, even when all seems lost. That is Ruth. And that's actually how we came up with the title for this teaching series, what we're calling Ruth, A Faithful Presence, A Faithful Presence. You know, the thing about faithfulness is that it's often uncomfortable, isn't it? It's often uncomfortable. Faithfulness is often inconvenient. It's often incredibly costly. It's uncomfortable. And at times, this series, I think, if we teach it well, will likely make you feel a bit uncomfortable too. And if I'm honest, I would say, I I actually, I hope it does does, I hope you get a little bit uncomfortable. Because if we can do this right, if we can get past the caricature, we're going to realize very quickly this book's actually, it's a bit unsettling. (laughs) The book of Ruth is not just sweet. The book of Ruth has some teeth, okay? It's got some bite to it, or we could say it this way. The book of Ruth is very provocative. It's a provocative book, And so as we dive in, rather than than avoiding all of the sketchy bits of the story, and rather than reducing it to this sweet little fairy tale, we're actually going to dive right into the weeds, okay? Because that's what the author has done. And so this morning, we're only looking at the first five verses of the book together. It's just really an introduction, as I said. But already, in those first five verses alone, we run into three incredibly provocative ideas. We, we run into these, these three very uncomfortable elements that, that kick this story off with a whole lot of tension that we have to walk through. And so, so those, those three elements are actually just going to be the three points of my sermon this morning. I'd call them three provocations, okay? Three provocative elements that begin the book of Ruth. The first is the period. What I mean is that the, the time period the book is taking place in. Second provocation is the place, right, the location. Thirdly, the people. Incredibly provocative, right? That's what we're going to walk through. Let me say a quick, uh, quick prayer for us, and uh, yeah, we'll continue to dive in. Heavenly Father, uh, we're thankful uh, for this ancient sacred text written some 3,000 something years ago. Um, I'm thankful that it was these events and, and the writing of these events were inspired by your Holy Spirit, and I pray this morning that um, by that same Holy Spirit, you would inspire our reading and our understanding of this text this morning. God, in a way that doesn't just fill our minds with interesting ideas and compelling facts and whatever, but actually in a way that does the deeper work of getting into our hearts and transforming uh, our lives. That's something that we need you for. And so, God, I pray that you would lead and guide uh, my words and uh, and that you would lead and guide our time together. God, be present, be with us, be moving. And use this morning, God, for your glory. Use this morning for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So three provocations, uncomfortable elements that kick off the book of Ruth. The first one, as I said, is, is the period, right? The time Period, and so right as we begin the the book, the very first words of verse one uh, tell us what this time period is. The setting it says this: "In the days when the judges ruled, in the days when the judges ruled." Now, I would submit to you that that little phrase instantly would have been incredibly uncomfortable to the Jewish ears, right? To the original audience, to the first people that were reading this book, that statement would have been very provocative. That's an unsettling beginning. And the reason is because this time period that they're referring to is an incredibly upsetting period in their national history. Now, of course, uh, if if you haven't figured it out, when they say the days when the judges ruled, they are referring to the period of time that is covered in the book of Judges, the book that immediately precedes Ruth, uh, likely, in your Bible. And so if you are unfamiliar uh, with Judges, uh, just so you know, it's it's pretty brutal. (laughs) In fact, it could be argued that Judges was likely the absolute worst period of time in the history of the nation of Israel. It's not a great setting for a love story. Judges on the whole was defined uh, by the, the final verse in the book of Judges. Judges 21 verse 25 describes this entire period of time of Judges like this. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone just did what was right in their own eyes. And so Judges, in some ways, is like a social experiment into how quickly society degrades when everyone simply does whatever they want to all of the time. (laughs) Let me tell you, it's not pretty. It's pretty brutal. You see, the book of Judges, it comes right on the heels of God having done some pretty amazing, some pretty amazing stuff. God had just saved the Israelites from what had been centuries of slavery in Egypt. And then after after leading them through the wilderness, he establishes them now in this special land, the promised land. And he gives them very clear instructions about how they're supposed to live with him and how they're supposed to live with others, with the world around them. And essentially the promise is like this. He says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will bless you with everything that you need. I've got you taken care of. And in turn, as I'm blessing you, you are going to share that blessing with the whole world. I will provide for you. I will protect you, and I will propagate you as a people for generations to come, forever. That's a pretty beautiful promise, right? God sets them up for the ultimate success. But then, but then we hit judges... And in Judges, the people people fall into this really, really unfortunate pattern of life. This really, really unfortunate cycle that just repeats itself again and again. If if you're familiar, it's called the Judges cycle, and this is what it looks like. Uh, They begin at the top in a time of incredible peace and prosperity, but in their comfort and in their peace, they begin to slip into apathy and compromise which then leads them into these seasons of incredible rebellion and sin that then leads to oppression, slavery, famine, and plagues. Life goes from really, really awesome to really, really terrible for them. Then after they've suffered long enough, they finally turn back to God. They repent and they confess. And then God hears them, he saves them, he restores them as a people, which leads back into another season of peace and prosperity for a time until they forget God again. And on, and on, and on this cycle goes. They never seem to learn their lesson. The book of Judges is actually an incredibly frustrating book to read because uh, the whole time you're reading it, you're like, come on, guys, what are you doing? Stop destroying yourselves. What, what is up with this, right? Ironically, if you think of it this way, it's really easy to judge judges, right? It's really easy to judge them. But before we do, before we judge these people, can I just ask you a question? How often, how often do we fall into this same cycle? Maybe it's not as grandiose or dramatic. Their cycle played out over years and generations. I I wonder like to a smaller degree, how often do we experience the same exact cycle like every week? <laughs> we or we show up to church, right? And we're listening to God's word and we're taking communion and we're singing songs and we're praying and whatever and then by Tuesday, we have forgotten everything <laughs> and then we just spend the rest of the week doing whatever we want, whatever is right in our own eyes until we walk back through the door again next Sunday morning and we confess and we remember. I got to wonder, like, are we actually all that different? Or are we doing the same thing? It's kind of convicting, huh? It was for me. you know, as a, as a staff team, we're collectively teaching through this book. And so we've been wrestling through these passages of Scripture together each week. And um, that tie between the Judges cycle and the cycle of our own life was actually an observation that Evan made. And it kind of hurt my feelings. So I figured I'd add it in the sermon. <laughs> so if you're offended, take it up with Evan. Um, why are we talking so much about the book of Judges? It's because the story of Ruth takes place smack dab in the middle of one of these cycles, right? What do we learn? Famine is wreaking havoc in the promised land. Life has gotten really, really bad for the people. Why? Because of the people's sin, (laughs) because of their neglect of God and his ways, because they've turned from him in sin and rebellion and apathy and they've made an epic mess of things. Life is really, really messy in Israel because Israel has made it a mess. You see, for the Jewish people, Judges was not a fun period of time to remember. It was not a fun period of time to ponder or to dwell on. It was a time of shame and a time of embarrassment. Can you think of any dark or embarrassing periods of time in our own national history? Seasons that we'd rather not talk about, or maybe seasons that we wish had never occurred, right? Slavery or um, manifest destiny and our treatment of the American natives. I'd bring up our treatment of women and immigrants, except for that's not so much history as it is our current reality. (laughs) Oops. This is uncomfortable, right? You guys feel a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit unsettled right now? This is, it's provocative. It's inconvenient. It's a bit upsetting. And that is how this opening verse would have hit the original Jewish readers. And so I think, as readers of this story today, we should probably be a little bit uncomfortable too. Ruth takes place in a provocative period, right? And that's just just the first seven words of the book. (laughs) That's only the first seven words. The second provocation that I want to discuss this morning is that of the place right the place where does this story begin it begins in moab right it begins in this country called moab and once again for the original readers of this story that would have been another shocking moment shocking to read about what moab moab like this this nice little israelite family from bethlehem is in moab what were they thinking? What were they thinking? You see, Moab uh, had quite the reputation. Moab had quite the, uh, the sketchy history with the nation of Israel, and it wasn't, it wasn't pretty. And so let me just briefly share with you a, a quick history to give you context of, of what these people are thinking about when they think of Moab, okay? Okay. This is the history, and this is the reputation. Firstly, let's talk about Moab's origin story, okay? Moab's origin story was anything but holy. You can read the story for yourself in Genesis chapter 19. In Genesis 19, we read of the birth of Moab, okay? This baby boy is born. His name is Moab. He becomes the founder of this nation, okay? Um, Moab's dad was a guy named Lot, Okay? You might remember Lot. Lot was the cousin of Abraham, okay? Or nephew of Abraham, rather. His dad was Lot. Moab's mother was Lot's daughter. Did you catch that? Dad is Lot. His mom was Lot's daughter. Moab was the offspring of an incestuous affair. Whoa. Right? That's pretty dark. That's a bit unsettling and upsetting. You might say that's a pretty salty story. To which I would say, yes, salty. It actually kind of ran in their family. Um, Secondly, right? Second, some of you got it later. I appreciate that. Numbers, Numbers chapter 22 through 24, we read another story about Moab. In this story, the king of Moab, a guy named Balak, uh, he hires, I think, what we can most clearly describe as a witch doctor hitman named Balaam to perform some sort of like voodoo curse with the intent to kill all of Israel. Thankfully, he's unsuccessful. God intervenes, and and the plan is thwarted, but they tried nonetheless. They tried to wipe Israel out. That complicates a relationship, doesn't it? Let's keep going. Numbers 25, we read about how the women of Moab seduced the Israelite men both into sexual sin, but also into the worship of false gods. And, and and the language used to, to describe this is pretty stark. <laughs> if you read Numbers twenty five, just starting in verse one, it says, Then the Israelites began to whore with the daughters of Moab, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal, to Baal, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So that's complicated that's not pretty. And then finally, lastly, in in more recent history, taking place in the book of Judges, likely just a, a few years or generations prior to the story of Ruth, we find that Moab had invaded Israel. They had conquered and occupied a portion of Israel under the reign of their king, a guy named King Eglon. And under his reign, they had oppressed Israel terribly. They had forced them back into slavery once again and were incredibly abusive. It was brutal. It was brutal until um, a left handed Jewish ninja, assassin named Ehud actually murders the king and wins back their freedom. It's a pretty sweet story. You should read it. Judges 3, right? Anyway, that's the picture. That's their relationship with Moab. And it's complicated. It's complicated. Moab is a nation of of idolatrous, sinful, oppressive enemies, right? They're not only evil. They're like a symbol of evil, a center of ungodliness. And that's where Elimelech chooses to take his family. That's provocative. That's provocative. I tried to think up, like, what would be a good analogy that we could resonate with for, for the weight of what this would feel like? And the best I could come up with is this. Imagine, imagine, like, a Jewish family from Poland who somehow survived Nazi occupation. They hid out or whatever and were never discovered, right? A Jewish family from Poland survives Nazi occupation and then chooses to move to Berlin in the 1950s, right? Probably not a great idea. (laughs) That's what this would have been like. It's shocking. This is a provocative place, a provocative place. Finally, a third piece of provocation from the text is the people, the people themselves the people themselves. Firstly, their actions were shocking. We kind of just talked about this, right? They choose to leave the promised land uh, and move to another country, and that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal, because in this period in place, right, the promised land was where believers lived. That was where the believers lived, and so unlike today, Unlike our faith experience today, geography was a major aspect of their faith. It was a major aspect of their faith. And so to leave was to abandon not only their people, this was to abandon their God. They weren't just leaving Israel here. They're leaving the faith. And that's a pretty provocative choice. That would have been a hard thing for these first readers to digest, right? These people betrayed us. They left us and our God and our faith. But you know what's even more shocking than their actions? It was the outcome, it was the outcome. And what we find as this story continues to unfold, verses three through five, is that one by one, they start dying off. Elimelech, then Malone, and then Killian or Chilion, right? They're gone. They're gone. And who's left? Naomi. She's left a grieving widow and a grieving mother who's lost not one child, but both of her children. She's left with nothing, except she is left with her pagan daughters-in-law, so she's got that going for her, right? Three powerless women alone and without hope. In some ways, the story takes a turn here from what's sort of shock factor to just kind of a gut-wrenching tragedy, right? It moves from shocking to mournful. It's, It's absolutely heartbreaking. They're gone. She's alone. That's a provocative turn of events, my friends. I think probably the final thing uh, that would have been shocking or provocative to the original readers of this story uh, is uh, the irony. (laughs) The irony of this whole situation, but also the particular ironies in the story. It's a little shocking when you think about it. Get this. A family leaves home in order to find the food that they've lost only to find their food, but lose their family. Oh, the tragic irony. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. And in fact, the continued use of irony in this story is actually one of the ways that I think we get to see the brilliance of this story, the the, the masterpiece that is the book of Ruth shining through. Uh, But a lot of this irony, most of the time, is lost on us as English readers, right? Because it has to do with uh, the the Hebrew language, in particular, the the names. So let me walk you through some of the points of irony, because I think they are fascinating. Um, Do you guys, do you remember the town that they left in order to go to Moab? Bethlehem, right? They leave Bethlehem doing what? Looking for Bread. Do you know what Bethlehem literally means? How it literally translates? House of bread. <laughs> House of bread. They leave looking for bread. It's kind of ironic, right? Yeah. Let's keep going. How about, how about these, these people? How about their names? Their names themselves, right? We start with, with Naomi. Naomi, who has become just the ultimate the ultimate picture of devastation and loss, right? Devastation and loss. In fact, later in this chapter, she asks everyone to start calling her by a different name. She says, Call me Mara, which means bitterness. I am bitterness. Do you know what Naomi's name means? Pleasant and sweet. <laughs> That's pretty ironic. How about the boys? Malon and Chilean, their names mean sickly and death, <laughs> which maybe isn't actually so much ironic uh, as it is just accurate and super unfortunate, right? They didn't make it. Um, so if you're expecting, maybe don't call your kids that. Uh, lastly, lastly, and this is the one that I think is most powerful, and most poignant, Elimelech Elimelech means my god is king my god is king guys this one is this one's almost laughable it's almost laughable why because what do his actions reveal that he's his own king he is his own king what do his actions reveal he's saying i don't care i don't care what god says I'm not sticking, I'm not repenting. I'm out of here. I can't trust anyone to solve this issue, but me, I'll get my own bread. I'm king around here. That's pretty ironic. There's this incredible discontinuity in this man between his name, which is more than a name, between his identity and his actions, right? He's called, my God is king, and yet, in reality, God had zero effect on his life, zero effect on his decision-making. My God is king. His life says, no, I am my own king. And guys, I can't help, once again, but feel a bit of conviction over the fact that I think many many of us also, myself included, at times, live with a pretty incredible discontinuity between our name, our identity, Christian, and the lives that we live. It makes me wonder, like, is, is Christian, is Christianity, uh, is that a label? <laughs> is, that, is that a label that we wear on Sunday mornings, but in regard pay zero? Uh, pay zero regard to at... at at work through the rest of the week pay zero uh, regard to in our neighborhoods or in our schools let me ask, ask does does having god does having god as your king actually change the way you're living your life does it actually change the way that you spend your time or spend your money or use your gifts Or are we just as ironic as a limelac? Back to the text, and uh, actually, no, we ended it. We uh, we got to the end of our verses for the week. We we did it. Um, and while it's tempting, um, I'm not going to resolve this for you. <laughs> I'm not going to tie a a, a pretty bow on this and tell you it's fine. It's all going to be okay, right? Like the reality of the story to this point, this passage, it's incredibly bleak. It is dark. It is depressing. It is confrontational. It's provocative. It leaves us shocked and unsettled. Really more than anything, what it leaves us is, is longing for a resolution, doesn't it? It leaves us longing for a resolution. In the midst of all of this unfaithfulness, in the midst of this loss and this death and this tragedy, we are left longing for hope, right? Where's the light at the end of the tunnel? We're left longing for for some sense of faithful presence in this story, longing for life and for restoration. We're desperate for it. As we should be. and I hate to spoil the story of Ruth for you, but can I share with you some good news for just a second? This hope that we're longing for, this life that we're desperate for, friends, we have it. We can have it. We have been offered that which our hearts most desperately long for but to see it, we've got to take a step back because you see this morning uh, I've really been trying uh, I've really been trying to get us into the minds and the perspective of the original readers of this story, right And hopefully you've, you've seen some of that, but, but here, at last, I want to zoom out. I want to zoom back out because the reality is we sit in, in, in with with a privileged perspective. (laughs) Because from our vantage point, I mean us today, us as this people in this period and this place, we know the hope that Naomi is left longing for. We have seen how this story resolves. We know the faithful one who is a better king than any of us could ever be. And his name's Jesus. Jesus is the one that the story of Ruth leaves our hearts longing for. Jesus, who didn't just leave Bethlehem for Moab, but who left the the, the comforts and perfections of heaven to plunge into the deepest depths of darkness in the world, Jesus, who didn't compromise his name and compromise his identity, but actually lived it out in complete perfection, Jesus. Jesus, who didn't die in sinful rebellion, but instead died for our sinful rebellion, that we might be saved. Jesus, who rose victorious, who conquered death, that we could find life and hope beyond the grave. Jesus, the reconciler of all things, Jesus, our Savior, our true King, Jesus. I'll leave you this morning with one final question. Will you be king of your life? Or will you bow to the only king who would ever give his life for you. The king who would stoop to meet you in your deepest, darkest time of need, your deepest tragedy and loss. Will you be king? Or will you let him be your king? We're gonna see what happens With Naomi and her story uh, in the coming weeks, but in a very real way. uh, What happens with your story, you can choose that now. And, um, man, friends, my hope, my prayer is that your choice would be Jesus, that you would choose Jesus. Today and whether that's for the first time or that's for the thousandth time, friends, that's a choice that begins with what we call repentance. And Evan's going to share with us a beautiful picture of repentance from the book of Ruth next week. But uh, as a quick spoiler, it begins with with changing direction, with changing our minds about who is king around here. It begins with arising. And moving towards our faithful God of love. And in a very real way, this is actually a choice and an action that we get to participate in every single week. And we do it as we come to the table. We arise and we move towards Jesus. And as we come to this table, in part, it's an act of repentance, it's an act of of, of recognition that we have lived as sinners that we have lived as our own kings, and as a result, we've really made a mess of things. And it's an acknowledgement that we stand in desperate need of a better king, but also it's a recognition that in Jesus we have him. Amen? So friends, I, uh, I invite you to the table this morning, a place to choose Jesus and to remember God's Faithful presence to us. Would you stand with me? I'll pray for us. Yeah, God, my heart is is moved this morning Um, in recognition of your great faithfulness and your great love that shows up in the mess and even in the midst of loss and tragedy and the worst of circumstances, uh, you are there. We acknowledge this morning, Jesus, that you are the king that our hearts long for, that you are the better king than we could ever be. We're thankful for the good news of your gospel, that you came, that you lived, that you died, that you rose, that you ascended, and that you're reigning. And that because of your great love and grace, we can be yours. God, I pray that you would take that gospel, that you would sink it into our lives, into our hearts, that you would gently lead us again to repentance and faith. God, in your great love, help us to love you and to respond with faithful lives of obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.